I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and this week we're going to be talking about some things you may think you know really well, but which contain hidden mysteries and histories that our guests may be able to illuminate, like sex, for instance. The idea of a homosexual, as we think of it today, did not exist until the late 19th century. Until then, there were people, of course, who engaged in same-sex sex, but they were not perceived as separate and distinct types of people. Or just how rare eclipses are in our universe. The only place you'll see a total solar eclipse is right now at this part of Earth history from planet Earth. There's never been a Martian that has seen a total solar eclipse. Or that the most badass African queen may not have been Cleopatra after all. As I told my students, you go for the juggler. She did extreme things but she gained the notoriety of being successful. That's what women have to be. Let's get back to sex, though. Specifically, sex and the law. When did the government first stick its nose in our bedroom? Who can we blame for associating sex with sin? And what does the future hold for the standoff between sexual and religious freedom? Our first guest may have some answers to these questions. Jeffrey Stone is a law professor at the University of Chicago and a scholar specializing in the Constitution. His new book, Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law from America's Origins to the 21st Century, finds the first intersections of sex and law all the way back in Greek and Roman times. And he traces their interaction, as well as their scuffles with the religion, through the Middle Ages, the Enlightenment, and from the founding of America on to today. Thanks for joining us in the studio, Jeffrey. Delighted to be here. So you've got a very sexy title there. How did this book come about? Well, it was a very much a curiosity-driven project. I've been interested in the Supreme Court's decisions uh, on issues like abortion and contraception and obscenity and, and gay rights. Um, but I really didn't know much about what the framers would have thought about these issues and uh, what the history before the framers and after the framers was on these issues. So I didn't know what I'd come up with when I started, uh, but it turned out to me at least to be a fascinating story. I learned an awful lot that I didn't know. What was your research process like? Did you get any weird looks at the law library asking for everything they had on pornography, for example? 
Um, not so much, because basically most of the research I do, I have people in the library at the university, and I just send them an email and say, you know, get me these 15 books. When Greg, the guy who, who does that for me, dropped them off, there were occasions when he would say, what are you writing about exactly? So there's a lot of aspects to sexuality and its regulation, um, many of which you cover, but some of which you don't really, like prostitution or miscegenation laws or, or rape. So how did you decide which subjects to cover in this book? Well, mainly what initiated the book was the Supreme Court decisions. And so the agenda from that standpoint was driven largely by what the Supreme Court has been dealing with, how those decisions came about and what the historical background for them was. And sex has a very long history, obviously. How far back do you go? Well, the book begins with the Greeks and the Romans. Um, and I did that mainly to give readers an understanding that what Americans often came to understand as a natural way of thinking about sexuality, kind of captured by the attitudes of the 1950s, say, um, was not in any way inherent, and that there are societies that we have a considerable respect for that had very different attitudes about sex, and that didn't have concepts of sexual sin or shame, and then, of course, to explain how we got the attitudes that we got and, and then how they became secular law. And in a way, the first person we can blame for our changing mores on sexuality is St. Augustine, right? Um, we can certainly attribute the shift uh, in Western culture to the notion that sex itself is inherently sinful um, to the writings of, of St. Augustine. Um, despite his own background, which was uh, very sexual, um, he ultimately came to the view that the reason for Adam and Eve's fall uh, was not because of disobedience of God, which is what the ancient Hebrews had believed, but because of sex. And that sex, he believed, was inherently sinful, uh, with the sole exception of sex in marriage solely for the purpose of procreation in the missionary position and without taking any pleasure in doing so. And that became kind of the paradigm uh, for a long time of the church's teachings on, on sex. And that colored, to this day, uh, the attitude of, of many people about how they feel and think about sex. Right. And that sort of worked its way into the law, too, um, up until the Enlightenment, right? And that's a kind of why the founders chose to insert things like the Establishment Cause to separate church and state, right? Right. Well, one thing that's interesting is it didn't actually work itself into the secular war law until like the 13th century. So for a millennium, the religious views of the church were designed to control the faithful, um, but they did not attempt to restrict those who didn't share the faith. That began to change in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, but the framers, who obviously lived in a different era, one of the Enlightenment, in which people like Voltaire and Rousseau were very skeptical about some of the teachings of the church. Um, so their, their attitude towards sexuality at the time the Constitution was adopted was interestingly uh, very much like what we would today think of as a kind of liberal view towards sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised to learn that uh, abortion and contraception had actually been legal in the U.S. when the nation was founded, and that there were even ads for abortion and contraception. So when did that change? Sure. So one of the things that, that surprises Americans is, is the assumption people tend to have is abortion was always illegal, and that um, what the Supreme Court did in Roe v. Wade was completely revolutionary. Um, and that turns out to be entirely false. There were never any laws against abortion or contraception. Um, in Western culture, going back to the Greeks and all the way up to the late 19th century. And at the time the Constitution was adopted, uh, abortion uh, was common uh, and was widely advertised. 
uh, and was perfectly legal, uh, at least up until quickening, which is basically the midpoint of pregnancy. Um, after that, the common law said that abortion was not legal, but that was almost never enforced, and most abortions took place before that time anyway. And uh, that was the general state of affairs. And that only began to change in the late 19th century with um, the actions first in terms of contraception uh, by, by Anthony Comstock and others like Comstock who took the view that obscenity should be prohibited and anything about sex should be prohibited um, because it would give people thoughts about sexuality which would lead them to behave in ways that were deemed by them to be immoral. Um, and obscenity, therefore, defined very broadly, meaning anything referring to sex in any way, shape, or form, including anything, including medical texts referring to contraception, were seen as obscene at that time. Um, And then there was also this notion that traditionally um, Protestants took the view that human life did not begin until quickening and until the midpoint of, of, of pregnancy, and therefore laws Uh, allowing abortion until then were taken as completely okay. Um, That began to change in the mid-19th century, and um, the social purity movement, uh, which adopted that view increasingly, uh, was reinforced by some uh, members of the medical profession who, acting also out of religious beliefs themselves, um, made the argument that uh, life begins at the time of conception, some of them claiming, for example, that from the very moment of conception, the embryo is capable of thought and reason, um, ideas that are scientifically ridiculous. Uh, and by the end of the 19th century, all obscenity was prohibited, uh, all uh, contraception was prohibited, and abortion was for the first time in history made illegal. Right. So Comstock and and the laws that followed are, to me, a good example of how public sentiment is used to change laws or influence the courts. So what happened in the mid-20th century to to beget this big progressive wave? Right. So one thing, again, it's always important to emphasize in this story is that what happened in the mid-20th century going up to the present uh, was largely a return to normalcy. Um, not this sort of revolution that for the first time changed the way we think about and deal with sex uh, in Western history. To the contrary, what the courts and social movements did was really to uh, eliminate this relatively short-term period of under a century uh, in which uh, American law became dominated by religious precepts, which had never happened before. And I think as people came to understand what the consequences, what the real-world consequences of these um, secular laws imposing religious belief on others were, uh, they began to push back in a much more aggressive way and say this is not the way a civilized society should behave. Mm. Some rulings, though, like the expansion of women's rights or expansions of these protections to gay people or trans people are not really a return to normalcy because I'm not sure the founders really envisioned gay marriage being a thing. So in some ways, do you think that these court cases are a response to mass mobilizations, too? Particularly in the gay rights area, I think that's very much the case. Well, first of all, it's it's worth noting that the idea of a homosexual, as we think of it today, did not exist until the late 19th century. Until then, there were people, of course, who engaged in same-sex sex, but they were not perceived as separate and distinct types of people. And when sodomy laws were first enacted, uh, they prohibited sex that was seen as unnatural, and that meant, for example, oral sex or anal sex, Uh, but had nothing to do with whether it was opposite-sex couples or same-sex couples. 
one of the interesting challenges that, that gays have had historically in terms of defending themselves against laws that discriminated against them or that even made it a crime to engage in, in same-sex sex is that, kind of ironically, a disadvantage is that unlike, say, African Americans or women who could not hide, in most cases, who they are, um, gays could. And so in order to avoid the discrimination against them, which was fierce if it was known who they were, um, they went into the closet. And this was not a happy state of affairs, but it was better than the alternative. The change that took place uh, was really due to the AIDS epidemic. And that suddenly, because of the horror of AIDS, many gay men in particular could no longer remain in the closet. It became evident to people that individuals they knew were gay, and they had never known this before. And they never knew they knew gay people before. And that enabled gays to suddenly come out of the closet and to begin a, a social movement that changed radically the views of most Americans about homosexuality. And that also changed the understandings of the justices of the Supreme Court about, about gays and about gay rights. And that led ultimately to the decisions of the Supreme Court holding sodomy laws unconstitutional in Lawrence in Texas and ultimately holding a right to same-sex marriage in the Obergefell decision. Right. So there it's mostly a question of visibility. Mm-hmm. Um but women were generally thought of as more equivalent to property than a person uh, for much of history. So for women, it wasn't necessarily a question of visibility. What role did movements like the women's liberation movement or feminism or various other mid-century movements have on shifting public opinion, did that ultimately shift the court's opinion or is something else at work here? No, in a similar way. Um, abortion, to, to go back to that as an example, the reality of, of having abortion, the pain, the mortification, the illness, the disease, the, the physical harm that came from having to do it illegally was largely kept in the closet in the same way that gays were in the closet. And it was the women's movement in the 1960s that began talking openly about the right of women to make these decisions for themselves. And one of the ways in which they dramatized the injustice of the laws against abortion was by showing the consequences of those laws to individuals. That had a serious effect on the nation and on the Supreme Court. And it's interesting that that people forget that at the time of Roe v. Wade, almost two-thirds of Americans uh, thought that women should have the right to terminate an unwanted pregnancy, um, that Roe v. Wade was not itself a highly ideological or controversial decision, that it was a seven-to-two decision, Uh, that three of Richard Nixon's four justices on the Supreme Court uh, supported Roe v. Wade, um, and that uh, three years later, when uh, President Ford nominated John Paul Stevens to succeed Justice Douglas, not a single member of the Senate asked Stevens a question about Roe v. Wade or what he thought about abortion. Um, It simply was not seen at the time as a highly controversial ideological decision. Uh, It was very much a part of what the majority of Americans wanted. And in fact, after Roe was decided, only 40% of Americans thought the decision was wrong. You can compare that, for example, to, say, Citizens United uh, involving campaign finance. 80% of American citizens thought that decision was wrong. What about issues of sex discrimination, for example? A lot of the protections that we extend now to homosexuals or transgender people were initially sort of based around inclusions of women into that. Did that kind of sex discrimination protection happen, do you think, as a result of things like Roe bringing abortion out of the closet? Well, the laws prohibiting uh, discrimination on the basis of sex uh, were federal laws to that effect. It came into being in 1964 with the Federal Civil Rights Act, 
uh, which prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, religion, and, and sex. Um, as a constitutional matter, uh, the Supreme Court had long held that laws discriminating against women were not unconstitutional. Under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which provides that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws, um, the question is, what does that mean? And Right. Well, what is a person? What is what is the equal protection of the laws? So virtually every law treats some people differently than other people. And obviously that can't mean that all laws are unconstitutional. So the challenge that the court has always faced is to try to figure out um, how do we know when a law that treats people differently than other people violates the, the equal protection clause? And what we what the courts did know is the paradigm violation of that were laws discriminating against uh, African Americans, because the Fourteenth Amendment was enacted after the Civil War, and that was clearly the motivating force behind the Equal Protection Clause. But it wasn't limited on, on its face to discrimination against African Americans or discrimination on the basis of race. And the question was, well, where else does does it apply? Mm. In many ways, reading your book has led me to believe that our judicial arguments are often arguments about words. What is a person? What is obscenity? Um, is there an argument to be made that the Constitution and its accessories are just squishy enough in their vocabulary that you could read them any way you want to please, you know, shifting consciousness? Um, yes and no. Um, the, the, the words of the Constitution are vague. Uh, no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Um, these are very vague concepts. They're not self-defining terms. And one of the longstanding challenges to the role of the court is how do you give content to those terms? Uh, one view uh, that has become public in the last several decades is this notion of originalism. So the idea put forth by Robert Bork and by Antonin Scalia is that the Supreme Court should invalidate laws only if one can say that the framers of the particular provision themselves affirmatively understood that provision as prohibiting the particular law that's at issue. And under that approach, one could rightly say that the framers of the Constitution never affirmatively intended same-sex marriage to be a constitutional right. Um, or never affirmatively intended abortion to be a constitutional right. And so originalists would say decisions to that effect are simply illegitimate. They're wrong. Um, on the other side, uh, the view is that uh, that that way of interpreting the Constitution uh, is completely itself illegitimate uh, because the framers of the Constitution never understood or intended uh, the provisions they were writing to be interpreted in such a narrow way. Um, the original framers were men. They were men of the Enlightenment. Uh, they knew they were writing very vague and open-ended provisions. Um, they fully understood that they would have to grow and change over time, um, and they wanted them to, to change as society evolved, as people's understanding uh, changed. And so the challenge then is how do justices do this in a way that doesn't just substitute their own personal beliefs for some uh, more well-grounded meaning of the Constitution? And the, the, the principle that I think works best for the court in this regard is a combination of, of two factors. Uh, one is that you look for the paradigm that the framers are concerned about. What is the core that they were worried about? And then you can reason from that. So to, take, to go back to the Equal Protection Clause, the paradigm was laws discriminating against blacks. Um, but the framers didn't limit the Equal Protection Clause to laws discriminating against blacks. They clearly understood it could be broader than that. And so the question is, well, what's... What else does it apply to? And so what the court has basically done is to ask the question, well, what groups are analogous to blacks 
in our society in terms of equality. And so the, the better way of thinking about this is to look for this kind of paradigm and then to use um, analogies over time and to try to live consistently up to the spirit and the, and the broader intention of what the framers had in mind. Right. You talk a lot about the shift in the position of religion and religious groups in being the majority or being the minority and the kind of arguments that they use um, that they've sort of twisted and now are using the same kind of arguments about freedoms that have won us a lot of these protections to advocate for religious freedoms or religious exceptions. Sure. One of the interesting phenomena that that has, has occurred uh, is that for the period from the late 19th century until close to now, religious believers have largely had their way in terms of conscripting the secular law to dictate to all persons that they must live their lives in accord with those religious precepts on issues in particular like obscenity and contraception and abortion and gay rights and so on. Um, And because of the revolution that we've seen in constitutional law over the last several decades, um, increasingly, uh, religious groups have found themselves on the losing end of the stick. And so on, on the issue today, the, the, the dilemma we face is, you know, to what extent should the law compel individuals who have sincerely held religious beliefs that they cannot act in certain ways that the state is requiring them to act? And uh, I, I think there we should not be so dismissive of those claims of rights. I think those are in, indeed real civil liberties in our country. Hmm. So in a way, your argument is for hands-off religion as well as hands-off sexuality. Yeah, right, exactly. Now, the interesting question is that the world has changed on these issues like abortion and gay rights and so on, and that now those people who hold these religious beliefs are on the defensive. But with the election of Donald Trump, it is possible that if another justice should leave the court in the next several years, uh, we could see a counter-revolution counter in the Supreme Court uh, that would put at risk uh, certainly the right to abortion and the extension of any gay rights or rights of transgender persons relative to where we thought we were a year ago. Let's go back a few hundred years to the 17th century, to two kingdoms wedged between the Atlantic Ocean and the edge of the River Kwango in modern-day Angola, the kingdoms of Ndongo and Matamba, and their formidable queen, Jinga. There's a beautiful portrait of her in the historical wing of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and her life is recorded in the musty tomes of the Portuguese Capuchin monks who wrote about her. But she's not very well known in the Western world. Now, though, we've got the first full-length English biography of Jinga, thanks to Linda Haywood, a professor at Boston University. She's joining us from Boston to talk about her new book, Jinga of Angola, Africa's Warrior Queen. Thanks for talking to me, Linda. Thank you for inviting me. So who was Queen Jinga? Jinga was the queen 
of a kingdom in what is today Angola. And uh, she was born in 1583. And she ruled Ndongo, the kingdom, from 1624 to 1626 when she was replaced by the Portuguese. But she mobilized a lot of troops and continued fighting the Portuguese, fighting the replacement king they had installed from 1626 to 1656 when she negotiated a treaty with the Portuguese. In the meanwhile, she had conquered a neighboring kingdom called Matamba, and in the negotiations with the Portuguese, she was able to reclaim certain areas of the eastern part of Ndongo, and of course the kingdom Matamba that she had conquered, which actually reached to the border of what is today Democratic Republic of Congo. So she ruled from, uh, you know, Matamba and Dongo um, before she was, um, she, before the negotiations with the Portuguese and uh, until her death in 1663, December 17, 1663. Those are some pretty remarkable achievements. Why is she so neglected in Western history? Why haven't I heard of her before? Um. Well, she was not neglected in the decades following her death. If you were in Europe in the late 18th and early 19th century, you would have read about her, but she became a notorious figure, uh, identified as a bloody tyrant, as a usurper, uh, as a person, a woman who should not have called herself queen and king at the same time. Hegel even mentioned her, and um, the Angolans, who were fighting the Portuguese to gain their, their independence from colonial rule until 1975. So on the one hand, you had her being represented as a subordinate person to the Portuguese, and on the other hand, you had the Africans, especially the liberation movement, the MPLA, which is now still the government in Angola, claiming her as a major resistor and as a figure of African independence. And just in America, a picture of her sitting on the back of one of her servants in 1622 when she went to negotiate with the Portuguese on behalf of her brother. This was a famous uh, scene that was captured in the traditions, in the pictorial traditions. And there we see her sitting on the back of a servant because the Portuguese had not given her a chair but wanted her to, to sit on a, on a carpet, which they, in the custom they had developed for Africans who had been conquered. Jinga refused to sit on the floor because she wanted to be on the same level with the governor. So some African-Americans, at least, had seen that picture. Wow, that's a pretty incredible story. Uh, it seems like she was um, a remarkable woman, not least because she was queen at a time when men seemed to dominate the world and the idea of women's rights was an alien concept. So how did she outmaneuver the men in her world? Well, the first uh, thing that we should keep in mind is that Jinga actually had in the traditions in that area of Central Africa, there were traditions of women who 
took pivotal roles when males were either weak, which Jenga accused her brother of being not being able to deal with the Portuguese. So when she got to Luanda, she in fact was able to negotiate a successful treaty. She also strategically converted to Christianity because she saw this as a leverage. When she got back to Ndongo, her brother wanted to convert. She said, no, you don't do it. You have to keep the traditions. But Jenga was able to use both Christianity and the traditions of Ndongo to mobilize the population. And she had a lot of local supporters. She was very strategic. She knew what was going on in the Portuguese world. She knew when the Dutch invaded, she saw an opportunity to ally with the enemies of the Portuguese, that's the Dutch. And in fact, they actually nearly won the war against the Portuguese. By the way, to assert that independence, she actually would insist that her ambassadors speak in Kimbundu, which was the language of uh, her people, and the Portuguese uh, would record the, 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 um, her speech and their, their, their presentations in, in Portuguese. So we had the, the Africans were speaking in Kimbundu. The Portuguese had interpreters who would then interpret Kimbundu into Portuguese and not the other way around. And in fact, in Angola, until the, the beginning of the 19th century, Kimbundu, her language in that area of Angola, Luanda, the capital, Portuguese as well as Africans spoke Kimbundu. And that was, in my view, because of Jenga's insistence on the independence, you know, of Africa. Always thinking of power plays, both in personal interactions and globally. Yes, yes. She did not want the Portuguese to send missionaries to Ndongo Matamba because she believed that there were spies, Portuguese um, priests. So she actually wrote letters uh, to the Vatican so that uh, she can get brothers of different orders, the Capuchins especially, they were crucial. They were the ones who came to Matamba, and they were the ones who recorded Jenga's life. So they were crucial intermediaries between Jenga, uh, the Portuguese, and the Vatican. So why do you think Jenga's legacy is so important? Why write this book today? Because I think that we need to see that African women, first of all, were major players in world history. Jenga, you know, lived a few years after the death of Elizabeth, the Tudor queen. We had Jenga leading her troops. We had her negotiating on a world scale. And as you said, nobody knows this. You know, Americans don't know this. And we need to know that. We need to know that the leaders we see now in Africa, Liberia, women leaders, that this was not the first time that women had taken the wheels of power and that they made a mark on the history of their own country, the history of Africa and the history of the world. And we need to know that because, by the way, the first group of Africans who came to Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, were, guess what? from that area of Angola where Jenga's people were. They spoke Kimbundu. So we have to know that. This is part of our own background, our own history. Africans were a central part of history. We have to recognize that all areas of the world, all peoples had their own way of life. They were part of human civilization. Africans were part. They were not outside. They were not just waiting for the 19th century conquest of Africa. 
when Europeans could impose, you know, their meaning on Africa and regard Africans as subordinates. That's ridiculous today in today's day and age. Absolutely. And to end on a, a more lighthearted question, <laughs> I had to ask, because you mentioned you've compared her to, you know, Elizabeth I and then later on Catherine the Great, Cleopatra. Right in the scope of her legacy. So who do you think would win in a game of Settlers of Catan or in chess? <laughs> I think Jenga would win. She was a strategist. That's what leadership has to be. I, as I told my students, you go for the juggler, okay? She did extreme things, but she gained the notoriety of being successful. That's what women have to be. And, you know, we had an election just, you know, re- recently where we were a little too timid. No, you have to do what you have to do to survive. And that's what Jenga did to make sure that her country, you know, remained independent. And by the way, many of the rulers after Jenga in that area, they came to be known as Jengas. Her name lives on. Up to 1961, I saw a document, Portuguese document, that says these Jengas are carrying on the legacy of their former ruler, the Jengas. They have all the resistance in their bones. That's what the Portuguese themselves recognize, that Jenga and the way she lived, the way she ruled, you know, her popularity did not fade away. It lives on. John Dvorak has already written about two of Earth's more spectacular destructive events, earthquakes and volcanoes. And his new book, Mask of the Sun, looks to outer space at another phenomenon that scared and inspired humans for millennia. Eclipses. Only the Earth experiences them, and only Earth's inhabitants would think to use eclipse astrology to both predict a pope's death and to untangle the mysteries of Earth's rotation. And big news, the next total solar eclipse will be this August in North America. So you've got plenty of time to read up on the science and the stories behind this phenomenon. Welcome to the show, John. Well, hello. So when was the last total eclipse of the sun? The last one that took place somewhere visible in North America? Well, the last one to cross the United States was 1991. And that crossed the island of Hawaii out in the middle of the Pacific. The last one to cross the continental U.S., that was in 1979. That one moved from Oregon to Idaho and Montana, and that was in the middle of winter. So it just wasn't very easy for people to to, uh, access. And because of the winter months, uh, the weather wasn't very good. Can you tell us a little bit about how a total eclipse is different from the other kinds of lunar and solar eclipses? Okay, well, an eclipse occurs during those rare occasions when the sun, the earth, and the moon are perfectly aligned in the sky. And that means there are two types of eclipses. If the earth happens to be to be between the sun and the moon, so that the earth's shadow touches the uh, moon, that's a lunar eclipse. If the moon is positioned exactly between the sun and the earth, that's a solar eclipse. And that's what's going to happen in August 21st. Lunar and solar eclipses have been happening presumably as long as the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon have been around, but modern astronomy has not been around that long. So how did people predict oncoming solar or lunar eclipses thousands of years ago, and and why would they want to? Well, the reason to try to predict them is that um, the Sun and the Moon are the two brightest objects in the sky, 
and an eclipse, uh, when an eclipse occurs, the light goes out on the full moon or the bright sun, and that's that's a very disturbing thing. And so people would want to be able to to predict when these things were going to happen. Accurate prediction of a solar eclipse really only goes back to maybe the uh, time of Newton. So that's only back some 400 years or so. Lunar eclipses, uh, they're much easier to predict simply because um, everyone on, on one side of the Earth can see a lunar eclipse. So it's easier to see records and those probably go way back in prehistory, be people being able to, to predict them. Uh, what's your favorite story uh, or myth associated with eclipses? Well, I would have to go back to 1919. If uh, you ask me what I think is the most important eclipse in history, uh, it's the one that uh, elevated Einstein to international renown. But something else very important happened as a result of that eclipse that very few people know. And that is, it very much affected the way that we see what is scientific truth and knowledge. So let me step back a little bit. Um, it's 1919, and Einstein has made this uh, surprising prediction that uh, starlight is going to bend if, uh, if it passes close to a massive object. And he even proposes a way of determining this. He says, if we look at the position of stars in the sky during a total solar eclipse when it's dark, those positions will have shifted a little bit. And so you go out and you take a photograph of uh, the night sky where the sun is going to be eclipsed many months in the future. You take another photograph of the eclipsed sky, the dark sky with the same stars, and compare the two. And it was shown that, yes, they actually are shifted, that starlight actually bends. Now, here's what the crux is. There was a uh, philosopher named Karl Popper. He came of age after the First World War, and he uh, grew up in Vienna, and he went to school in Vienna, and he attended a lecture by Einstein when Einstein described why, star was, why starlight should bend. And he described how this was confirmed uh, during the 1919 eclipse. And that got Karl Popper to thinking. Karl Popper was concerned with this basic question, how do you tell the difference between science and non-science? And he said, it's, it's what he describes as the De uh, demarcation problem. And he said, you know, whether a theory is scientific or not, it's pretty easy to go out and verify it. People are verifying theories, science or not, uh, like astrology all the time. He says what is crucial, and what was crucial in the 1919 eclipse, is that Einstein came up with a way to falsify his theory that if the star patterns hadn't shifted, his theory would have been proven false. And that's what Karl Popper said, that is the core idea in science. The way you can tell the difference between a scientific idea and a non-scientific one is that you can actually pose an experiment 
to falsify the science ones. And uh, today, that's very much at the root of the way that, that people distinguish what scientific truth is. Wow. So it all goes back to the sun just not being visible for one day. This amazing coincidence that the moon and the sun are almost the same size in the sky. We happen to live at a period of Earth history when this is going on. If you go back a few hundred million years, the, the moon was much closer. And so when it passed in front of the sun, it not only blocked the sun, it also blocked a great deal of the area around the sun. And if you go several hundred million years in the future, the moon is going to be too far away for anyone to ever see another total solar eclipse. And that's why only the, if, if you want to fly around the solar system and stand on a solid object, the only place you'll see a total solar eclipse is right now at this part of Earth history from planet Earth. Mark your calendars for August 21st, when the moon's shadow will cross continental North America. And check out the map on our episode page so you can figure out if you would rather be camping in Casper, Wyoming on that day or drinking mint juleps in Charleston, South Carolina. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and that's it for Smarty Pants this week. See you next time. Until then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.